This is another iRaw podcast. I think that people are ready for a significant transformation in the ways in which we treat each other, other beings in our shared environments. Welcome back to the Animal Turn podcast. I'm delighted to bring to you today another bonus episode. In today's bonus episode, we're going to be speaking a bit about the book Phoenix Zones, Where Strength is Born and Resilience Lives. In particular, we're going to be focusing on the concept of Phoenix Zones slash the Phoenix Effect. And it's a really interesting conversation. Now, the person who wrote this book and who I'm talking to today is Dr. Hope Fedosian. Dr. Hope Fedosian is a professor of medicine at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine. She is also the president of the Phoenix Zones Initiative, a global nonprofit that uses medical and public health expertise to advance the health and well-being of people, animals, and the planet. With over two decades as an internal medicine, preventative medicine, and public health physician, she has cared for individuals who have experienced displacement and violence and worked on policy to address human, animal, and environmental exploitation. Hope's work cuts across six continents and has included consultative support for national and intergovernmental policymakers. We talk about in today's episode several of the kind of encounters that she's had, some of the violences and victims and survivors of violences who she's encountered, as well as the various policy interventions that she's engaged with. Her work has been featured in a whole host of international and popular media news outlets, including Scientific American, HuffPost, BBC and Voice of America. Many of her publications, including the book Phoenix Zones, focus on ethics, global public health, and the links between human, animal, and planetary rights, as well as intersections with health and well-being. It's a really interesting and fascinating conversation. You'll hear that I get quite excited throughout, particularly as we talk about kind of the idea of potential and how any given action has the potential to either result in negative or positive outcomes. And yeah, I, I just find this really quite interesting because so often we think about the future with pretty glim and dire outcomes or outlooks. And Hope gives us in this interview and in her book ways of thinking about how we can build a more resilient world that creates more resilient beings, both human and other animal beings. So it really is an interesting conversation that I enjoyed a whole bunch. Before I let you dive right into it and enjoy, I just wanted to flag an event that's coming up next week. So this should be airing on the 9th of October and coming up next week on the 17th of October, there's a really interesting media event that I think you'll enjoy. So Hope, together with some other experts, is going to be hosting a Q&A like panel session with experts that look at health science and medicine. They're particularly interested in talking to kind of journalists or people that communicate anything to do with health science and medicine. Because and I think that this is really important. There's a lot of misinformation when it comes to these kinds of topics. And oftentimes animals are neglected in these topics. So if this is something that interests you, go to the Phoenix Zones Initiative website uh, to find out more. Also, very, very excitingly, Hope was kind enough to give me not one, but two copies of the book. So I've read the book myself and I've got an extra copy for a giveaway. So make sure that you check out the Animal Turns various social media platforms, including Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, and Twitter, or X, formerly known as Twitter, whatever that means. Go check out those. I'll be sharing kind of links on how you can potentially win a copy of that book. And it's really pretty much like it's really, really easy. It's a matter of sharing and uh, liking. So check that out. You have an opportunity to win a copy of Hope's book. Okay, that's enough rambling from me for now. I hope you enjoyed the episode. Hi, Hope. Welcome to the Animal Turn Podcast. Thank you for having me, Claudia. It's so great to be with you. I recently finished reading your book. It's a wonderful book. I wasn't too sure what to expect when I got it because I'd never heard of this idea of a phoenix effect or a phoenix zone before. So I didn't know which direction it was going. And it was really a delightful read. I, I enjoyed reading it very much. And I'm looking forward to talking to you today about, you know, this idea of a, a phoenix zone. Before we get into that, though, 
I'd like to always ask guests a little bit about themselves and and how you came to do the kind of work you're doing. And just from the little snippets, you don't spend a lot of time talking about yourself in the book, but from the little snippets that you do, it sounds like you've had a remarkable career that's been involved with, with a lot of people in a lot of places. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself and your story and how, how you came to be involved with the, the Phoenix Zone initiative? Of course, Claudia, and thank you so much for that introduction and your kind words about the book. I'm a professor of medicine at the University of New Mexico School of Medicine, and I'm also president of Phoenix Zones Initiative. Over the past couple of decades, as an internal medicine, preventive medicine, and global public health doc, I've had very fortunate opportunity to work with people across the globe, across six continents, and to care for individuals who have experienced different forms of violence and displacement, often forced displacement. And during that time, I've also worked on policy and worked with others to end exploitation of humans, animals, and our shared environments. And my medical and public health expertise spans a, a fairly wide range. I work on communicable and non-communicable diseases, hunger and malnutrition, environmental threats, including climate change, forced migration, and violence and conflict. And I also study and write about these issues. And a lot of my writing, as with the book, focuses on ethics, global public health, and the links between humans, animals, and our shared environments and ecosystems. I'm very interested in the connections between human, animal, and planetary rights, health, and well-being. And in 2019, to be able to work on these issues more holistically, I co-founded Phoenix Zones Initiative, which is a global nonprofit that advances the interconnected rights, health, and well-being of people, animals, and the planet through education, research, and advocacy for changes in policy and practice. Wow. And I mean, thinking about your timing, 2019, right? At, at that moment in time, we were all contending with the COVID-19 pandemic and, you know, what what a time to start thinking about the connections between, I mean, scientists and, and scholars for a long time had been pointing to these connections between global health, safety, vulnerability, and the relationship between humans and animals long before COVID-19 hit. But I imagine it must have been a, a surreal time to start the Phoenix Zone initiative while COVID was, was underway. We launched the nonprofit just before the pandemic really became a uh, you know, worldwide event. And so it presented a lot of opportunities. I, I, I'm a believer that there's a lot of opportunity within crisis and challenges. And so if we look for those opportunities, then we can, we can make the most of them. In, in medicine and public health, what we know is that the best time to launch an intervention is often either in the middle of a crisis or just after a crisis. For example, you know, just in thinking about patient care after someone has a heart attack, it's the best time to talk to them about quitting smoking. When we think about building healthcare systems, one of the best times to rebuild a healthcare system is immediately after a disaster or a serious conflict. So, you know, in thinking about the pandemic, we thought, okay, this is awful. It's going to be awful for people and for animals all around the globe. And it has been. But we also thought, okay, what can we do? What can we do with this challenge, this opportunity to push forward an agenda that really addresses the root causes of pandemics, right? Including the maltreatment of non-human beings. That's fantastic. And I mean, we have seen exactly what you've you've said, the kind of interventions in public health during and now, I mean, still during the, the pandemic at the World Health Organization, I think is a testament to what you're saying. You know, the, the conversations that are underway about developing a new treaty, a pandemic response treaty, I think is really a testament that crises make us look. And I think for me, the pandemic really in the early days pointed that when there's political will, we can do a lot, you know, the, how air traffic stopped. And I know that there were a lot of issues with how quickly things stopped and there were economic concerns. But it was startling to me that when governments make decisions, things can actually 
change dramatically and quickly, right? Like we all realized, oh, wow, we have to stay at home and airplanes have stopped moving. And wow, there can be massive and significant change when there's political will. Exactly. And it's an opportunity to reflect. You know, I found that during the pandemic, we all had an opportunity to reflect on many of the distractions that we experience every day that often distract us from the everyday problems that we're we're facing and that we're continuing to create. And, you know, it really gave us and it has given us an opportunity, if we take it, to focus on solutions, including preventing the next pandemic, whether it's through the WHO negotiated pandemic treaty or, you know, the many other ways that we could address interconnected issues that range from the climate emergency to pandemics to violence and conflict and forced migration. That's such an important point. I want to come back to what you were saying about your background and your history in in looking at and helping people who have gone through really violent and traumatic circumstances. Because for folks that haven't read your book, they might not really, I mean, there's so many types of violence in the world that there are different scales of violences. But the people who you've encountered and who you've helped have really gone through I would say some of the worst forms of of violence and systematic violence. Uh, We're speaking about people that have been caught up in conflict, people who have been, you know, committed to slavery, uh, to a whole host of different traumatic and and torturous events. Could you give us a sense of of some of those stories? Uh, Maybe you could tell us one of the stories of the folks from your book that just try to bring to light kind of what what kind of violence you're talking about here. Sure. So... A lot of my human rights work actually focuses on two issues. One is torture and the other is sexual violence. And over the past 20 years or so, I've had the opportunity to work with torture survivors who are seeking asylum in the United States, fleeing situations that are really untenable. And, you know, over that time, I've also worked with other survivors of trauma, human survivors of trauma, but then I've also come to know animal survivors of trauma. And what I've seen in that process is that they, you know, they not only suffer tremendously as a result of their circumstances, but they also display tremendous resilience. And, you know, one of the examples that I provide in the book is of someone I call Doc, who has become a close friend, actually, since I met him. I met him when I was evaluating him. I was doing a forensic medical and psychiatric examination of him. He was applying for asylum in the United States. He had come from Iran and was fleeing torture and persecution. And as I describe in the book, he suffered tremendously. He had been tortured multiple times. And, you know, what happens to people during torture is really just unimaginable. You know, you listen to their stories and you hear their experiences, but it's it's almost otherworldly, to be honest. And and so, you know, I came to know him through that process. Fortunately, he, he was granted asylum in the United States. His application was successful. We found that documentation of medical and psychiatric evidence of torture actually increases the likelihood that people will be granted asylum. And Over time, I've come to see how incredibly resilient he is, especially in an open and free society. He's really thrived in the the medical field here in the United States, and he's really been a great role model for other people who's reunited with his family. And, you know, he's just an incredible example of what's possible if people are given a chance. And, and so, you know, one of the reasons that I wrote the book is to show that, you know, the potential for that level of resilience, but also to show that other animals are capable of the same amount of resilience. They, they suffer in ways that are similar to the ways that we suffer. They suffer physically, you know, they experience pain just like we do. They suffer not only physically, but they also suffer mentally. They suffer from depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress disorder. They suffer from fear. I have always believed that I think fear is one of the worst emotions that, uh, that someone can experience. And certainly we and other animals experience fear when our safety is threatened. And so, you know, I wrote the book to show that, you know, 
not only is, you know, there's, there's suffering in the world and it's a result of our shared vulnerability with each other, but also the structures that make us more vulnerable, the social, economic, and legal frameworks that make some of us more vulnerable than others. And, you know, but then the social, economic, and legal frameworks that we, that we have built can also promote resilience, you know, if they emphasize freedom and, you know, and justice and opportunity and respect for dignity, this idea that each of us has intrinsic value. And so, you know, we, we have this potential for resilience, just like we have the potential for suffering, but other animals also have this potential for resilience, just like they have the potential for suffering. And I think when we realize how much potential we all have, it makes it even more serious and urgent that we address suffering in among our fellow human beings and our fellow non-human beings. So, you know, I, I have been so, so touched and affected by the stories that I've, I've heard and I've learned of other human beings and non-human beings who have suffered around the globe, but I've been equally touched by their potential for for resilience and recovery and for modeling these biological foundations of of peace and hope and what society could do if we if you know if we put our our energy in the right place i love I love that focus and I love that you're focusing on kind of potential it's almost like imagining you know even the way in which I'm not a physicist, but the way in which physicists think about kind of potential, that the the force, the energy that is in a being and in a person, there there's a there's a potential, and that potential could go numerous directions, right? It's not it's not foreclosed, it's not predetermined, but you can make a way forward easier or more difficult. You can make there there are multiple. I'm getting caught up, but I'm getting excited about this metaphor because the the idea that you can, I sometimes think that. When you've gone through a suffering or traumatic event, you think, okay, well, this is it. You know, I think you hear this all the time. You hear of children that have grown up in in families where there is abuse and they're like, oh, well, you know, that boy is going to grow up to become just like his father. And I think that that kind of predetermination is wrong. And I think it's, 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 it's hurtful. But when you get help, there's nothing to me that says that those boys can't actually become the people that fight on behalf of ending domestic violence. And same thing with animals. And I like that you keep kind of bringing me back to animals to saying, yes, there is this potential for humans to resist these predeterminations that we are destined to be violent and suffer and hurt and just perpetuate that violence and suffering and hurt. And there is potential for animals that have been violently hurt to potentially be something else in their futures. And to sit with that potential is really quite powerful. Absolutely. And I, I believe that we have this potential for both, you know, violence and suffering and for resilience because we have these biological foundations. This is all part of our biology, basically. And, and, you know, for, you know, you mentioned, you mentioned animals and bringing it back to animals. So one of the stories I tell in the book is about Negra, who's a chimpanzee, she was given that name by the people who held her in a laboratory in the U.S. She was taken from Central Africa as a child, as a infant chimpanzee. She was no doubt taken away from her mother in a way that threatened the life of her mother or killed her mother because mother chimpanzees don't give away their babies easily. Negra was shipped in a crate to the United States and forced into decades, a life of captivity. And during the process, she was she was put through all kinds of laboratory experimentation. She was she was forced to have sex with another chimpanzee and and to produce three babies who were all taken away from her. And and just, you know, year after year, she faced this torment. And, you know, now, fortunately, she is living in a sanctuary in Washington State in the United States, but she had signs of post-traumatic stress disorder. She she displayed it differently, but just like Doc experienced post-traumatic stress, Negra experienced post-traumatic stress. And that's because we have, we share with other animals neurobiology. And 
that neurobiology sets us up for mental disorders, but it also sets us up for what's called neuroplasticity, the potential for resilience, the potential for our brains to continue to change throughout our lives for better or worse. And, you know, when, when Negra had more freedom, freedom from harm, freedom from threats to her bodily sovereignty and her basic liberties, and also had freedoms to, freedoms to the opportunity to live, you know, more like she wants to live and to associate with her fellow chimpanzees in the ways that she wants to associate with her fellow chimpanzees, she began to recover. And it's taken a lot of time. And the people who take care of the sanctuary where she lives, Diana and JB, are just incredible what they do for the chimpanzees there. But it has it has made it has meant all the difference in terms of her, in terms of her ability to recover and and to begin to thrive in, you know, the mind and body that that she inhabits. So I think the more we think about, you know, these principles like liberty and sovereignty and justice and opportunity and respect for dignity, intrinsic value, the more we think about these as biological needs, the more we begin to understand their importance in social frameworks, in economic frameworks, in legal frameworks, and, you know, and begin to see how you know, if we infuse those principles in in our policies and practices, that will trickle down in ways that promote resilience in society rather than violence in society. So I talk a fair amount about structural violence and structural resilience in the book. And that's that's sort of what I mean by that. It's an interesting move you're you're doing there. So I know that those principles that you mentioned there, uh, liberty, dignity, justice, love and tolerance, hope and opportunity, as well as sovereignty are what you present in the book as kind of the the pillars of what a phoenix zone would be. And, and we will talk a bit more about the, the phoenix effect and the phoenix zones in particular. But I think what you just said there is is quite interesting because I think a lot of these concepts have perhaps been spoken about in the social sciences and in the, you know, in kind of a social and political sphere of saying like sovereignty is important. Dignity is important for, for us as a society, right? Like as sociologists, as political scientists, philosophers, we've spoken about these concepts, but perhaps biological scientists and physiologists and doctors have not engaged. So I think, and maybe you could correct me, maybe I'm wrong, but I think what you're doing there is really fascinating in bringing together the social sciences and and the the natural sciences and saying actually for public health and for our bodies and for our well-being these principles are also really important what's all around you almost everywhere you look and makes your life better birds learn all about these beautiful creatures in this wonderful new podcast called birds of a feather talk together Two experts guide two newbies on their journey to learn more. Mallard ducks, ivory-billed woodpeckers, Hawaiian honeycreepers, blue jays, cardinals, sandhill cranes, and more. Each week we discuss a different bird and walk away with a better understanding of the birds all around us. Oh, and we have a ton of fun doing it. Listen now. You're going to like learning about these birds. I guarantee it. Right. Absolutely. In, in medicine and medical ethics, we emphasize principles like respect for autonomy, non-maleficence, this idea that we shouldn't, we should do no harm, beneficence, this idea that we should do good and, and justice. Those are four principles that we emphasize heavily in medicine and medical ethics. But I agree too, too infrequently do we tie them back to what those principles mean to to our patients and to the communities that we serve and that sort of thing. There's a field of anthropology called medical anthropology that has, has, has tried to bridge medicine and sociology and anthropology a little bit more. Dr. Paul Farmer was one of the people who wrote 
and talked about these issues a fair amount. He he wrote about structural violence based on what he had seen around the globe in terms of how policies trickle down to individuals and communities in the form of suffering if they're inequitable policies and unjust policies. And what I've tried to do with Phoenix Zones is to show that that clearly is happening you know, in the stories that I have bared witness to around the globe and the people that I've been honored to meet and to get to know, it also happens in other than human animals because these are biological phenomena. And so, you know, the the nice thing is increasingly, I think the disciplines and sectors are beginning to talk to each other. You know, we see that through, you know, a number of different initiatives, but you know, we could certainly be doing more of it. And, you know, and but just thinking about the global challenges we face, we are going to have to work interdisciplinarily um, to to address them. Uh, yeah, and, and work that you're doing kind of with the Phoenix Zone Initiative, I think is, you know, a, a really good example of how we can begin to work together and to realize that both of these different realms of considering the social and the natural, the biological and the political, they, and I mean, it's a key theme throughout your book that we have to, we have to think holistically about these, these challenges if we're going to ever reach these, these potentials. So I want to take a, a switch now to just, you know, for, for listeners to make sure that we're, we're kind of grasping what these concepts are. So I know that this, if, and correct me if I'm wrong, but this idea of kind of animals being resilient or humans being resilient in the face of really great adversity, this, this potential factor that you've been speaking about here is known in the medical sciences as the Phoenix effect. Is that correct? That's correct. So for example, after someone has a severe medical event or a severe psychiatric event. So for example, a a heart attack or some type of severe trauma. What we see sometimes is that if the right elements are in place, that individual can recover and sometimes be even stronger than they were before, especially as it relates to whatever medical or psychiatric event that they had. So that's really kind of the Phoenix effect in a in a nutshell. And that's what I was seeing in the people and animals that I met around the globe, that even after the unimaginable, the worst had happened to them, if they were given a chance, they could recover and even develop more strength in their recovery. And with this, the strength, so... If, if you've had a heart attack and they talk about you having the Phoenix effect, when they say, you know, you're doing not even, not only have you recovered, but you're actually stronger, is this a, a physiological strength? Is it now your heart looks stronger? Or because I, I get the sense from your book that you're not just speaking about the physiological kind of strength, but in the medical sciences, are they only referring to the kind of bodily capacity to respond? Yeah. So, you know, if we're, if we're just talking about a heart attack, sometimes what happens during a heart attack is that, say, for example, the arteries close off to a major portion of the heart that's responsible for making blood get to the rest of the body. Well, during the heart attack and even immediately after, the ability of the heart to pump effectively diminishes significantly, especially if there's been a major heart attack. But people can actually restore their the ability of their heart to pump blood to other areas of the body to what it was before, or it may be even better than before, depending on what people do immediately after that heart attack. So if the right elements are in place, they can recover and maybe even improve upon their baseline function, if you will. So it's, it's pretty phenomenal. And there's lots of different, you know, medical and physiological and anatomical reasons for that as it relates to, you know, what happens after a heart attack. But the basic principle is, is the same, that even after a significant tragedy, after a significant event, um, a bad event, an individual can recover physically, mentally, and maybe even be stronger than before if the right elements are in place after the the tragedy. 
Okay, so so it it depends on the intervention that takes place in in and this comes back to what you said right at the beginning of the interview. What happens in the face of that adversity or that crisis matters. It really matters in terms of the future potential. And now you extrapolate that kind of idea of the Phoenix effect to Phoenix zones. And throughout the whole book, I was trying to really nail down like what is a Phoenix zone? And, you know, kind of throughout the book, you had mentioned maybe it's a place, it's a framework, is it a practice? So could you give me a kind of sense of what are you imagining as a, as a Phoenix zone? So simply put, Phoenix zones are places that advance the rights, health and well-being of people, animals and our shared environments. And they do that through key principles, respect for liberty, respect for sovereignty, compassion and justice, and respect for dignity or intrinsic value of individuals who are within those places, living within those places. And one of the lessons that I've taken from watching the Phoenix effect in in people and in animals around the globe is that we should really be doing more to prevent these problems from occurring in the in the first place. And what we're really interested in doing at Phoenix Zones Initiative is to create a world of Phoenix Zones so that we prevent problems before that they before they occur in the first place, so that we prevent violence before it occurs in the first place, so that we prevent diseases before they occur, so that we prevent further climate change and environmental degradation that that harms us all. And so the idea of a Phoenix zone is really to create a place where Phoenix zones ultimately become obsolete, where we don't need them because the idea is that we prevent horrible things before they ever happen. And of course, we can't prevent every horrible thing before it happens, but there is a lot we could do structurally to prevent so much of the individual and collective violence and suffering that we see around the globe that affects people and animals and our shared environments. I like that a lot. So it's it's kind of happening. So a Phoenix zone, I think, is both, they're both existing places right now, such as the many sanctuaries you mentioned in, in your book, or places like, you know, the, uh, what was it? I've written down women and wolves, but I don't think that was, it's warriors and wolves. I can't read my own handwriting. Places like warriors and wolves uh, or Serenity Park, the numerous kinds of sanctuaries you mentioned are, they are kind of existent or existing Phoenix zones that practice these principles. They practice love, they practice dignity, they create opportunities for both animals and people to to find themselves and to figure out ways to live in a, in a healthy and safe way. So they are practicing these principles and they're showing that it's possible, right? There are sanctuaries that are showing it's possible to live in multi-species communities. We don't have to kill these animals. But at the same time, if I understand you correctly, you're saying these places are great, but we need to practice. All of us need to learn to practice these, these principles. Right, exactly. And the more we practice them, the more they become ubiquitous in society. Because, you know, and this is, this speaks to neurobiology as well. The more that we engage in acts of justice, the more that we model acts of justice, the more likely they are to be contagious. The same is true with hope and opportunity. And so the more that we infuse these principles, respect for liberty, sovereignty, compassion, justice, respect for dignity or intrinsic value, in our everyday interactions with each other, with other animals, in our social policies, in our economic policies, and in our legal frameworks, the more that those principles are going to trickle down in the form of, you know, better social norms and, you know, the ways that we interact with each other on a daily basis and, you know, the next set of policies that we create, that sort of thing. I guess, I mean, it, it really is a, a matter of showing that this idea of the impossible is, is possible. 
and, and maybe just to to bring it down, right? Because some folks will hear this, and and you know, I'm, I'm, I've got to admit, I'm, I'm not necessarily outside of the camp. Like, it's easy to be critical, right? It's easy to say, "Oh, that sounds impossible. How on earth are we going to achieve a globe that respects the dignity of of animals? How on earth are we going to achieve a globe that respects the the liberty of animals when you know we've practiced these kinds of property relationships with them for seemingly forever, right? So I, I get why people would be reluctant. But I think as you do in the book, you show that there are spaces and people and places that are practicing these principles that show it's possible. So maybe you could, you know, to to bring us down from this kind of abstract level, highlight one of these sanctuaries or one of these existing Phoenix zones, and maybe just walk us through how it's an example of these these principles and practice. Well, so let me go back to Negra. She lives in a chimpanzee sanctuary in Washington state in the United States. And, you know, it's clear that JB and Diana and the other people who provide care at that sanctuary, not only for Negra, but for other chimpanzees who arrived with her from the laboratory and other chimpanzees who have arrived since, it's clear that they, they respect their they respect their bodily sovereignty. So they try not to interfere with their ability to make decisions for themselves unless they they absolutely have to, you know? And so that has made a tremendous difference. So an individual's ability to make decisions for themselves and what happens to to their bodies is hugely important to their to their well-being. I mean, just think about Think about yourself and your ability to make decisions throughout the day and how much that influences your well-being, your health and well-being. You know, the same is true for those chimpanzees living in that sanctuary. And they're also given opportunity, opportunity to go and explore, you know, all, all the, you know, the grasses and everything else that they find outside on their own time in the ways that they want to. They're free to affiliate with other chimpanzees when they want to, or to seek solitude when they want to. And that matters tremendously for their mental and physical health and well-being, just like it does for us. If you think about even just during the course of your day, you know, if, if someone is interfering with your ability to, to get done what you want to get done and to do what you want to do, it interferes with your, your mental and, and physical health and well-being, if not immediately, certainly over time. And so, you know, that's what we see it's very simple, you know, very simple principles that we, you know, we, we really rely on every day, but we kind of don't think about them in this way as they relate to, you know, our larger social structures and legal frameworks and so forth that either, you know, allow us these freedoms or, or interfere with those freedoms. That's a, that's a really great example. And I, and, you know, I think the, I think many, it seems to me like there's a crisis of anxiety and mental health disorders. And, and I think a lot of these possibly also speak to some of the challenges. You know, it seems like they're they're invisible, but no, they're not invisible. It's it's people and animals increasingly feeling the pressure of, of modern day life, of these constant interventions on our liberty, our ability to make decisions. And of course, you know, talking about autonomy and, and freedom like will, who, if you've got willpower and whose will is it, you know, this is getting into solid uh, philosophical terrain. But I think it really is important having the idea and having the, the feeling that you can choose, right, that you have options uh, available to you. And, and yeah, it's just even what you're talking about here, you think about the, the many, many animals, you know, how many options are in front of you and and what options they have, right? You, you think about agricultural animals, you know, what options do they have in their lives to do something other than becoming food? Pets, what options do they have in their lives to become something other than a pet? These are really, really, you know, what must that mean for how they experience life? Exactly. I mean, one of the sanctuaries I talk about in the book is Farm Sanctuary, which is a, a sanctuary for animals who have been used in in farming and have been rescued from those situations. And they too, like Negra, like the rest of us, have potential 
significant potential, not only for suffering, but for incredible resilience. And ultimately what matters to their ability to recover is their ability to be free to make choices for themselves, to explore their own environments the way that they would want to, to make relationships with those that they want to, to avoid relationships with those they don't want to have relationships with. All of these things matter to our well-being and to other animals' well-being. And and these, these liberties are lost in all of the ways in which we use and exploit animals and society. And, you know, one of the things that I hope to do with the book is to ask people to think carefully about what we decide to work on for other human beings and for non-human beings and how we do that. So for example, I think it's critically important what people are doing in terms of harm reduction, both as it relates to, to people and to animals, you know, to, to try to ban certain practices, right? Like you know, in the case of farmed animals, gestation crates and that sort of thing. But we have so much further to go, right? Animals should not be in those situations in the first place because not only are they physically suffering, they are mentally suffering significantly from depression, fear, anxiety, depression, post-traumatic stress, or acute stress disorder since they're still in those situations. And so, you know, it's I think it's really important that we think about these th these issues as deeply and as broadly as possible because we only have so much time and so many resources to work on these issues. And so that leads me to think we should absolutely focus on abolishing practices that lead to physical and mental suffering, right? We should focus in the case of the, you know, the people I've gotten to know across the world, we should always be working toward, you know, ending torture and sexual violence, whether we believe that's possible or not, you know, with that, you know, throughout society, we should always be working for the abolition of those practices. And I think the same is true for animals. We should be working toward the abolition of factory farms, of farming animals for human use and for using them in experimentation. If we really, really are committed to their physical and mental health and well-being. So I think, I think it's, like I said, I think it's critically important for us to think about these issues as carefully and as broadly and as deeply as possible and to think about others' experiences and how they experience what what is happening to them. That's powerful because, you know, so often when this welfare versus abolitionist argument comes up, I think people are like, well, as long as both strategies are happening at the same time. Um, I, you know, I spoke to Jeff Sebo about bioethics and he's, you know, he's he was a phenomenal guest. He's really wonderful to listen to. And I remember one of his key takeaways was, to say, you know, many people are working on many projects and all of these projects are, are helping. They're thrusting us forward, whether it's activism, whether it's people that are working with welfare policies. And, and I tend to agree with him. But I think what you're saying here in terms of the time available to us and the significance of the time and our interventions is actually really important. You know, just, just today I had someone come and ask me for, for, for money on the, the side of the street for an interview, like for a for, for a charity of sorts. And I asked for a business card because I wanted to do my research. Like, who am I giving my money to? You know, sometimes we maybe just give money because, you know, it's a checkbox. So we check a box when we're flying somewhere and we say, okay, well, I'm reducing my carbon footprint. Or, but actually to take time to think about the significance of your intervention is stopping using a plastic straw more weighty than stopping eating fish when most of the plastic in the ocean comes from fishing nets. And I think time to think, but also time to act. Like you say, there are limited resources, there's limited time. So actually thinking seriously about our interventions is one of the most profound things we can do. I agree. I agree. I, I think I agree with Jeff that many of the interventions that are happening are critically important and you know part of a push to move forward. But we do have limited resources. We do have limited time. And I also think that we shouldn't, we shouldn't sell ourselves or our fellow human beings short. I think that people are ready for a 
for a significant transformation in the ways in which we treat each other, other beings in our shared environments. And I think that the pandemic has pushed us along in some ways, you know, to, to embrace greater change, you know, bolder solutions that really address the roots of problems and the roots of suffering, because it's, you know, it's, it can be overwhelming, but, you know, there's a sense of urgency that we can really take advantage of and, and push forward in bold ways if, if, we, if we ready ourselves to do so. That's wonderfully said. And I think the, the power of not settling, sometimes it's really hard. You know, you want to get a small win when you can be fighting for a bigger win. And, and that's really hard. And I know towards the end of the book, you, you know, coming full circle now, speaking about the pandemic and now, you know, One Health has come up a lot. In the last season, we were focused on biosecurity and One Health seems to just be coming up more and more and more. And I know towards the end of the book, you did, you did kind of say, you know, One Health is great. It's amazing. But we need to make sure that we're looking at the root causes. If you want to prevent a pandemic, you have to look at what are causing pandemics and really take those those causal factors seriously. Yeah, absolutely. We push for a just one health approach, a socially and ecologically just one health approach, basically founded on the idea that we cannot separate justice from health, that justice is a is a prerequisite for health, both for people and for animals, that we must recognize each other's rights, other beings' rights for us, for all of us to be physically and mentally healthy and, and well. So we're, we're, working, we're working with an international coalition to push forward a better version of the WHO negotiated pandemic treaty. And as part of that, we're really pushing for a just one health approach that addresses the root causes of pandemics like ecosystem and habitat destruction, intensification, farming practices, trade, trafficking, that sort of thing. Because if, if we don't address those root causes, then certainly more pandemics will come. And there's global consensus among many scientists that, that COVID is not the big one, that, that more outbreaks with pandemic potential are coming and that they are likely to be more, more severe in terms of their impact. I think what I really do like about one, what I really do like about One Health and about your book is that at the, at the very least, and I think they're doing much more than this, you're bringing animals and humans and our experiences into the same frame. And I think for a long time, there's been a resistance to doing that. People who are interested in human pain are reluctant to bring animal pain um, and, and resilience and recovery into the same frame as one another. And, and same thing with kind of emergency or health events, right? We, we speak about COVID-19, but of course there's massive bird flu outbreak and massive swine flu outbreaks constantly happening. And these are, we're entangled in those as well. And it can feel like it's different news. It's, it's a different siloed event, but no, these are all desperately entangled. And I think both your book and the One Health approach compel us at the very least to say, well, we have to be looking at these as, as you've argued holistically, we have to be considering them at the same time. Hope, before we go on too long, I, I want to give you an opportunity to, to read your, your quote. Well, something you said was very poignant in thinking about the impossible. So the quote actually relates to that. I have quotes at the beginning of each chapter in my book, and here's one that I, I find particularly inspiring. This is from Paul Rogat Loeb in the book, The Impossible Will Take a Little While. The men and women who have every reason to despair but don't may have the most to teach us, not only about how to hold true to our beliefs, but about how such a life can bring about seemingly impossible social change. It's beautiful. Really lovely. And I think at the core of it, I think suffering is also part of, you, you mentioned this right at the beginning, is suffering is almost part of being an animal as well. There is, because our lives are so complex, there is suffering. And you, you know, as you get older, you have this opportunity to look back over the course of your life and to see the challenges you as an individual have faced and, and stitch them together and think, wow, like I, I got, I got through that. And it's, it's quite a, 
yeah, it's it's a pretty profound thing to realize that everyone's got their challenges. The challenges range from, you know, everyday challenges to some of the the more, you know, awful forms of violence that you've spoken about here today. But when you recognize that all animals over the course of their life experience adversity and and what opportunities can we create for that adversity for us to be resilient to that adversity. I don't think adversity is going to disappear, but how can we be more resilient? How can we be less fragile? How can we, I think those are really, really, yeah, it's, it's, it's incredible to look back over your life and just think, wow. And how can we create a more resilient society so that people and animals can thrive so that they're we're, we're going to experience suffering as biological beings, as vulnerable bi- biological beings, but we don't have to experience the more pathogenic forms of vulnerability, the, the structural violence that trickles down from problematic policies and you know, economic frameworks and laws that just serve to, to, to harm people and animals, you know, we can instead build a society that encourages more resilience. And, and when we do suffer because of natural causes, allows us to overcome that adversity more readily. I think that's what's so key. And after working, you know, around the globe for the past 20 years or so, I think that's the thing that I've, I've come to see as critically important you know, because otherwise I think it's, it's, it's possible to become so overwhelmed by the problems we face, but instead to think about how, okay, we're all part of the problem or problems. We can all be part of the solutions. You know, what, what can we do every day, you know, in our everyday lives and our interactions with each other and so forth to, to create more potential for resilience, not only for ourselves, but for you know, everyone, humans and non-human beings who live around us. Yeah, I really appreciate what you what you did there, because sometimes there's a tendency to focus on the individual and to say, you know, I don't want to do this. That's not my thing. And and actually we need to we need to bridge these connections between ourselves and our lived experiences. And because none of us are born into societies. We don't choose the societies we're born into. We don't choose the kinds of hurt and pain and feuds that come from the societies that we're born into, but we're connected to these much bigger things. You know, every country, every society has its own history and its own pain and its own hurts. And sometimes we get so attached, we don't even realize why are we fighting this fight? And it's just because this is a fight that's always been fought. And 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 sometimes to just stop and think like, like, whoa, you know, uh, and it's, I mean, it sounds so much easier. Of, of course, people have been trying to, to do these things for, for millennia, but there really is there's a mindfulness involved in just stopping yourself as an individual and realizing that you're part of this big thing. And that, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. Like I'm getting, I'm getting very like sentimental with you here because I think it really is important. Yeah, absolutely. And I actually, I think we can learn a lot from other animals in these areas. I mean, one of the things that I've started paying more and more attention to over more recent years is how other animals engage in just interactions, how they resolve conflict. Sometimes they're so much better at it than we are. I mean, my partner and I live with with four dogs as part of our family. And I watch how they resolve conflict versus how we resolve conflict. And I just think, sometimes I look at them and I think they're so much better at it than we are. (laughs) You know, just the ability to walk away or to smooth something over. And, you know, people like Mark Beckoff and Jessica Pierce have written about justice in animals, wild justice. Um, I think that there's so much to be learned there. Yeah, I think you're, you're right. And I mean, I, I think even about like the forest fires in Australia, how, how animals, not to say that they're not impacted, they, like, you, like you've said throughout, you know, I think they've experienced insane amounts of trauma from losing their habitats, from having their own families disrupted. But yet they also oftentimes have a way of getting on, getting on with it. Like this is where we are now. How do we, how do we build up our society? How do we adapt? You know, I, I koalas are now moving into cities because, well, they're like, this is the option. These are the options available to us and this is what we're going to do. So how do we respond? And that's our responsibility now. How do we respond to animals moving into our cities? How do we respond to animals that are facing 
devastating situations. And and I think that it's a matter of our healing and moving forward as well. If if we're going to create a global Phoenix zone, then we need to think about these things. I hope it's been lovely talking to you today. Before I forget, I know that you're going to be speaking a bit more about kind of health-related matters, health science and medicine in an upcoming event. And I want to make sure that we plug that event and you can maybe just tell us a little bit about it before we before we close up. Sure. Thanks for that opportunity, Claudia. So we're having a media event, a media day, if you will, on October 17th at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time, which I believe is 8 p.m. CET, will hold a Q&A with experts, medical, public health, and other experts for journalists who report on science, health, and medicine. And our panel of experts will discuss issues such as overcoming challenges that arise when covering the ethics and science of medical research, accessible solutions, including new evidence-based non-animal methods. And we think that the media event will be of particular interest to students interested in journalism, as well as those who are early in their careers, and anyone who's really interested in figuring out how to better frame the ethics and science medical research so that it's more easily understood by those you're communicating with. And you can learn more on our website, phoenixzonesinitiative.org. Wow, that sounds amazing. Are you are you also going to be speaking in this event about both uh, the interactions between humans and animals in these in these realms? Absolutely. Yes. We will talk about how research ethics and research policy affects people and animals and how it can protect and benefit both people and animals with with a better better vision, better agenda when it comes to research policy. Well, I think that's so important. Uh, you know, I was reading just the other day about how rarely animals are mentioned in climate change, in climate change reporting. That animals and 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 you know, factory farming are rarely mentioned. And of course, my feed, you know, it comes up all the time. It seems to me like it's an obvious thing. And this is the the problem of algorithms. Is it seems to me like everyone's reading this, but no, it's it's rarely mentioned by by journalists. These connections are rarely made. Yeah, I think that's so that's so important. And also to resist the kind of stigma that can come from some of this reporting. I remember, again, to come back to COVID-19, early days with bats just being labeled as vectors before any research had been done. And 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 even if even if bats were the vectors, does this now mean that we need to go out and kill bats and create this kind of paranoia about bats? No, that's that's really irresponsible journalism and reporting. Right. Exactly. And if we really think about the vector vectors, it's really about how we've destroyed bats' habitats, engaging in all kinds of ecosystem destruction through deforestation and so forth, and how we've put other animals in untenable situations where they come into contact with bats, where they exchange, you know, new emerging pathogens. And then we, you know, take other animals, whether it's raccoon dogs, you know, who may have also been at the epicenter of of SARS-CoV-2 and the COVID-19 pandemic and put them in untenable situations at live, live animal markets, right? Like the vector is our behavior. The vectors are our, our actions, what we do and don't do that affects other, our fellow human beings and other, uh, other animal beings. Just another reason that language, language and framing are so important. And that's, you know, one of the things we hope to talk about at the media day as it relates to medical research, medical and public health research. Thank you so much for for doing this work. I think it's really, really, really important and significant. And especially at the moment right now when health is being spoken about so much, right? And we live in a time and an age where there is a lot of misinformation. It's difficult to know what is, it's difficult to know how to think through. We, we really do have to do more work to think through what we're consuming ourselves, to be mindful of the algorithms that help us to think in particular ways, just simply by what we're exposed to. And, you know, as consumers, I know that this is directed at journalists, but we're all people that are kind of exposed to narratives and ideas, and we all come from our own societies. So, yeah, I think it's, I'm really excited by this event, and I, I think I will probably be there too. So I'm very, very excited to to learn more once there. 
but Hope, before we say goodbye, I just want to give you a, a one last opportunity to mention, you know, where folks can find out more about the Phoenix Zone Initiative, as well as what you're currently working on now. And if people want to get in touch, how do they how do they do that? So what are you working on and how, how can people find you? Thank you so much, Claudia. So the best way to find out about everything we're doing is to go to our website at phoenixzonesinitiative.org. We're working on a range of educational activities for professionals as well as for the public. And we always have educational training and mentorship opportunities there. We're also continually working on research and innovation providing a lot of thought leadership in these areas and also developing new tools that go beyond old ideas like GDP. And we're always involved in local to international leadership from local municipalities to Washington, D.C. to and Capitol Hill to to the UN. So you can learn more at phoenixzonesinitiative.org where you can also learn about our media event. And then you can also find us on social media, whether it's Facebook or Instagram or X, formerly known as Twitter or YouTube or LinkedIn. <laughs> it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. I've really enjoyed, I mean, I'm sure you could tell throughout the the, the conversation that I was just getting excited by the, the potential of the potential of what you were saying. It's really, it's great to kind of speak about a forward looking approach to thinking about how we create a better world for humans and for animals. So thank you so much for, for being so generous with your time with me today. Thank you, Claudia. Thank you for the opportunity. It's been great to talk with you. Thank you to Hope Ferdosian for being a fantastic guest to Animals and Philosophy, Politics, Law and Ethics, Apple for sponsoring this podcast, to Jeremy John for the logo and Gordon Clark for the bed music. This episode was edited by Christian Mentz. This is The Animal Turn with me, Claudia Hurtenfelder. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ah!